Philippians 1. So we did the intro last week. We'll do Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, and we talked about how if we were to look at the overarching kind of theme of Philippians, it'd probably be joy. Cause it's said like 15 times in some way, shape, or form. And it's um, most definitely uh, the theme of this book. But as I look at the first 11 verses, love, knowledge, and discernment seem to be something we need to pay attention to here. Um, so just to recap, just a hair, Paul is in prison, right? And he's writing this to his friends in Philippi. And it's the first European church that resides at the northern end of the Aegean Sea. And we talked about that last week. It's about 61 AD, and Paul was there five, or, uh, 10 or 11 years earlier on his second mission trip. And when he was there, he got to visit Lydia. And Lydia uh, was the Jewish lady who was at the prayer meeting down by the river outside the city walls because they didn't have enough people to have an actual synagogue. So they would leave the city and pray together. And then uh, Paul and Silas got thrown in jail. He got whipped and thrown in jail. And uh, when they were in jail in the evening, Silas and Paul were singing hymns and it shook the gates and they opened and the jailer was going to go kill himself. And Paul cried out to him, no. And then he got saved. They went to his house. They blessed his whole family. They all get saved. And then he was asked by the magistrates to leave. Uh, but before he left, he um, visited with uh, Lydia one more time. So we talked about how this letter is more like a love letter than the other ones that we've gone over so far. And it's got a lot of admonishment, admonishments. Uh, we'll see right from the beginning of this chapter. So let's read, um, starting at verse 1, we'll go down through verse 11, if you would. So Philippians 1, it says here in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Christ Jesus. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to all glory and praise of God. So you can see right from the beginning, um, it, this is a real admonishing letter. Like he's talking to them like he's friends. Like I'm praying for you. I love you. We're, partner, we're partners in this together. So I, it's really so much of a friendship letter where he really loves these people. And so I'll, you can see from the beginning, he says, um, Paul and Timothy, but we know that there are other people with him, and we talked about that last week. Um, he writes this letter from himself and Timothy, most likely in preparation of sending Timothy there to do mission work or to stay with them for some period of time. And it doesn't diminish the others that were there with him on, on this missionary journey, but would remind them of Timothy and let them know that he's probably the one that's coming. So... Um, 
the letter is addressed very specifically to three groups of people at Philippi. And that's part of one of the things we need to look at. So all of these people are believers, right? This letter is not written to get anybody converted. So you notice there's not like a big conversion theme here. Um, it's written to members of a local church. Like if I was to write you guys letters as a church family, he addresses the saints. So as we know, saints are believers. All believers are saints, right? They are uh, hugios or holy or set aside. They are holy people. Um, the second group he addresses are overseers, right? So some versions of the Bible say bishops, but it's really the same people. It's overseers, elders, if you will. Um, these are the men in the church that pastored the shepherd. So he's writing it to pastors effectively. And um, this would be consistent with Paul's teaching in Timothy and in Titus. Like I'm writing it to the men who run the church. And next, deacons are covered as well. So these are table servants. Deoconos are the table servants of the church. The people who, if you remember the story of Stephen, he, um, he is the one that is going to serve the tables at the church. He is the servant within the church. Um, and this is also covered in the letter to Timothy as well. So what's interesting about this, that it's been 10 or 11 years since he's been there, right? And the church as a body of believers is grown. So remember, there were 10 people outside the city, or less than 11 people outside the city walls. But now there's like elders and deacons and believers. So the church has most certainly grown. Um, and there's a multitude of leadership. There's, there's more than one deacon. There's more than one elder. So there are a lot of people there. So I read this article from World History that says um, the one church that remains that was found in Philippi from back then that archaeologists have dug up. It was about 400 AD. It's this giant octagon-shaped pyramid roof building, and it has colonnade halls. So those, you look at that old Grecian stuff where they build columns and make a large hall of columns. So that's what this building looks like. There are accommodation for pilgrims and two large stone, what they call bishoprics, or basically um, houses for church leadership to live in and priests, pastors, stuff like that. The entrance had a large um, uh, monumental gate uh, leading to what's called the Via Ignitia, which is the main road that goes into the city. So they built this thing so that like when people came to the city, you had to look in the front doors of the church when you got there, which is pretty cool. An archaeologist found that the church was named after Paul. So the, it, they found inscriptions where they're like, these people, you know, right after Paul's time, um, named the, the church after Paul. So by the end of the 5th century, there were five other churches that were there, or basilicas as they called them, that were home to about 3,000 Christians. So they went from 10 to about 3,000. Um, but Paul's going to get into the meat of this letter by expressing his thanks for the church and for the believers that are there. And this is also the first time that we see Paul express joy so you'll see it in this. Um, remember what we said about joy last week, not being happiness. So we need to separate those two things. So, um, you know, the Philippians would have lived in a culture that rejected Christians anyway, because they were Romans and they were pagans and they didn't like the Jews. They definitely didn't like the Christians because as we know, what really happens is they get in the way of things like commerce because, you know, when you're selling sex and when you're selling idols and you're selling all these things, when you change people's hearts and they stop doing those things, it ruins the commerce that's there. And people don't like it when you take away their, their bread. So 
They definitely didn't like them for this. Um, so Paul's in prison in reality, but Paul prays for them in joy. So he's in prison, but he's joyful for them while he's there, which is an important thing about understanding the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is realization of your state in Christ Jesus as saved, right? And why is he joyful for them? Because of their partnership in the gospel. That's what brings him joy, is a partnership with them in the gospel. And it was twofold. The sharing of the gospel and the monetary support that Paul probably got for them. In prison back then, Paul wouldn't have had any money or made any money, so they would have sent him money so that he could eat, probably have clothes, whatever it is that he needed while he was in there, get water. Um, so they partnered with him in that way. And it would have supported his missions and then at some point supported him just surviving in prison. So he's driven to prayers of joy by knowing that the gospel is being spread by these people and where they're living and what they're doing. But in verse six, um, if you were to look at verse six again, it says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ is really, is really interesting because this this verse is often used to support a, a thread of theology called once saved, always saved. There's a lot of arguments on this, whether or not you can lose your salvation or not. And there's two big views on it in theology. And one is you can lose your salvation, like you were saved at one point in time, and then you can lose it. And then the other one essentially is once you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't take away from Christ the work that he has done. So this verse is important to look at when it comes to that, because Paul's being really intentional here with the way that he says this, why so I want to look at it. So he encouraged them with their partnership, which is about work. And then he tells them that Jesus will finish his work in them. This is an important part of this. So Jesus started the work in you, you were saved. And um, he is going to finish that work that is in them. So there was probably some doubt, if you think about it. Why would Paul say this? Because people are probably wondering, can I lose my salvation? And Paul's like, Jesus is going to finish that work that he started in you. You can't give back what you can't create or make or give on your own. Christ is doing this work, not, not you. And he is going to finish it. You're not going to finish it. Um, how long would they be persecuted? I mean, you got to remember, they're living in different times. So like, as they're toiling through this, they're probably like, you know, when is this going to get better? This is truly not a prosperity gospel. He's like, you just got to keep toiling for the gospel. Christ will finish the work. That's what you just have to have your hope in. So some probably doubted if they were saved or not, and some doubt about the truth of the gospel. But I want to read this quote from the guy we know as, as the Prince of, Prince of Preachers, right? So Charles Haddon Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. Listen to this quote where he talks about this specifically. It says, Where is there an instance of God's beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Show me for once a world abandoned and thrown aside, half-formed. Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel. With the design in outline, the clay half-hardened, and the form unshapely from incompleteness. So what Spurgeon is really saying here is, you don't see anything in God's plan that's incomplete. We may not understand it yet, or we may not feel like things aren't going the way we want them to, because we want prosperity. We want happiness. What he wants for us is joy and hope 
in the work that he's done. And that's the important part of this. He will finish that work. Why do we know this? Because he finishes all the work that he starts, right? So I definitely support theology that says once you're saved, you are definitely always saved. You can't give grace back because it wasn't yours to give to begin with. And there's a couple reasons for this. Um, you know, our last study should be good enough evidence, but what does Paul teach us in Ephesians? If you remember right, when we went through Ephesians, right, that we are made new when we're saved. So if you're made new, he made you new, then you are new. You no longer crave the things that you had before the sin. So we're not the same creatures anymore. You can't turn that around. He has made you new. He has indwelled you, right? We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we no longer have desires of the flesh. So we do still live here on earth though. And that's kind of the part that's hard to get your head around is we live here. We still commit transgressions. We still do things wrong. We still have bad thoughts, all of those things. But as believers, we should be convicted. We're convicted of our sin, convicted of our transgressions, convicted of the things that come out of our mouth, the things we do, the things we look at, the way we act. The Holy Spirit pricks our heart every time we do something wrong. And that's part of being a believer. But we still have the hope and we still have joy. And that's okay. Um, and then we're called to repent of those things right we strive for holiness which is an important part of this equation uh, in all things and as we grow in him the idea is we sin less and there's that little saying right we are not sinless but we sin less right and we become sanctified listen to this uh what jesus says in john 10 in verses 28 through 30 he says i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me. So you didn't just go to Christ and tell him you're going to be saved. But the father gave you to the son to be saved is greater than all. So God's greater than everybody. So he has the ability to do that. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father, I and the father are one. So if you are saved and God gave you to the son and no one can take you out of his hand, then you cannot give back your salvation. It is not a thing. And we can debate it, but the reality is God said it can't happen. So when you're having a horrible day and you think, I don't know if I'm saved or not, that's when you rest in joyfulness, not happiness, hope, right? It's, I know I'm saved. It's okay that things are screwed up. I didn't start this ugly train. I'm just riding on it. And sometimes it gets bumpy and curvy and stuff doesn't go the way I want it to. And it's not okay, but it will be better in the end. And we're going to get there at some point. But we have to rely on the fact that we know that our Father does not leave things undone. And that should bring you joy. That's the joy that we have is knowing that He completes what He started, right? And... Um, there's an argument for another time as well, but the premise that you can lose your salvation really comes from a really fundamentalist point of view um, that sees once saved, always saved as kind of a liberal, uh, heretical view that essentially does get kind of skewed in the modern contemporary church where it's like people believe they can do whatever they want. They can live whatever lifestyle they want because they're like, well, I'm saved. I mean, I'm always saved. It doesn't matter how much I sin because I'm saved. Like God's going to save me. I know Christ is in my heart. And that's the problem is people are abusing grace. But Paul had something to say about that as well, oddly enough. And uh, if you 
find there are people in your circle that do that. In Romans 6.15, Paul covers it when he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he answers his own questions by saying, by no means. So there is no way you can say, I'm saved, but I live this lifestyle, and it's okay. Paul's essentially saying, you're not saved. You have not been changed, or you wouldn't be living that lifestyle. You don't sin all you want because of grace. Because of grace, you want to sin less you want to become more sanctified um, some may think that uh, they were saved and then they leave the faith but the reality is they were not saved that is just the way it works so no matter what their testimony is and i know there's been people in the church and even pastors and preachers and teachers who are like i was a christian for 20 years and i lost my sight you did not you were not saved you were never convicted otherwise that work that began in you wouldn't have failed and you would have repented of whatever sin you have and changed the way that you thought it's just a reality so paul's words of encouragement here are perfect for us today i think um god is not done working in you you know even as if you get old you think it, it's hopeless god's not done working in you or he's not done working in your wife which is important as well not done working in your husband you need to be reminded of that god's not done working in your husband god's not done working in our kids God's not done working with the people that are around us. That's an encouragement to us to continue to preach the gospel to them. He's not done, right? Because the day of perfection is not here yet. And we know that's where God is going to be done. So we can strive for holiness. But guess what? You can't become perfect because it's God who perfects. Your call is to stay on the grind. That's your call. Keep striving. Stay on the grind. Keep working. Because he began a good work in you, and he will complete it. And that's what we know. So as Paul continues to admonish them, as we go back to Philippians and look at this, um, with feelings from his heart, and then partaking in grace with him in this toil, in this struggle, with sharing the gospel, he makes a strong correlation between his feelings for them and Christ's feelings towards them, which is an interesting thing, right? So he yearns with the affection of Jesus Christ towards them. Paul yearns for them to be saved and frankly to understand that the joy of understanding the work that they are doing for the gospel. Christ yearns for us, right? Christ, he went to the cross for us. His desire for us is all the way to the grave. He yearns for us. Um, I yearn this for our families here. I've, especially over the last, over a year, I've developed this strong desire for all of you um, that... You love each other in a way that looks like this and that we as a church family grow in love for each other in this way. That every time we sit down and we study, whether there's three of us here or 30 of us here, that what we are getting is what Jesus Christ would have for us and that it helps us to grow in each other and grow as believers, grow in joy, grow in hope, grow in peace, right? And uh, I yearn that for you and you should yearn for each other and for your families in that way as well. That's an encouragement for you that today when you go home, one of the things that you should do when you look at your spouse is like, I'm yearning for you to be perfected in Christ Jesus. What can I do? Is it prayer? Is it admonishment? Is it opening the word of God? How do I love you in a way that helps bring you closer to Christ? But this that comes next really brings Paul's uh, opening to a head. So this opening 11 uh, verses is going to get kind of summed up here. Paul has begun this letter like a prayer. 
and it's very clear that he wants their love to abound with the knowledge and discernment. So on face value, it's hard to figure out what he means. How do you love more? What does it mean for love to abound more and more? Like, what does that look like for love to abound more and more? It's not like falling deeply in love with a spouse. It's like, how do you just love more and more? I love you. I'm doing things for you. I'm caring for you. How do I do that more and more? Well, it's kind of tied up in the Greek language. And I want to give you a little, just a little thing. We'll get ready to close up here in just a minute. But uh, it's interesting when you look at this, right? So let's look at the word for a minute. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the four Greek words for love. If you guys remember what they were. Um, and one of them is agape, right? So agape love is that love of the father and the love that the father has for us, right? I would have expected it to be phileo love, brotherly love, because I want you to, in love, I want it to abound more and more as you love and care and serve one another. But in this case specifically, it's agape love. Um, And this agape love, as we know, that love is deep love that's not reciprocal. It's sacrificial and it's benevolent. So he wants us to grow in a way where we are sacrificing for one another and we don't need it to be reciprocated for us, right? But also Paul is saying here that their joy will grow, that their desire for the gospel and spreading of the gospel will grow, that truth will become a yearning desire for them, that they want to know what is truthful, what is right, and that their love for the Father grows. So he's like, when I want that agape to abound more and more, it's I want you to grow in love with the Father and what the truth is and knowledge and discernment more and more. But then another question arises is like, how do I do that? How do I become closer to the Father that way? How do I abound in love more and more in that agape love, right? So the other answer to that, again, comes kind of from the Greek language. And when you correlate words to one another in Greek clauses, um, you use gender. So male words, feminine words, and um, words that have, they're called neuter, or they're words that have neither, right? So in this case, the word agape is a feminine word. As you continue in the clause and you get to the words knowledge and discernment, but knowledge and discernment of what? Because he doesn't seem to be clear in this. So that's why we look at the language and we look and see which ones correlate with one another. Well, knowledge, that word epignosis, and discernment, the word aesthesis, are both feminine. So agape is feminine. So they all, in that clause, correlate with one another. So we travel back to the main idea of the clause, which is love, and find that Paul is telling us our love for the Father grows more and more through our knowledge and discernment. That's how we become more and more in love, through knowledge and discernment. So knowledge is gained for a couple ways. You guys are educators. How do you get more knowledge? Well, you study. That's what we do here. We study more. Uh, You study on your own. It comes from life experiences, by learning how people relate to one another by learning your spouse. Um, It comes from sound theology. It comes from careful exegesis of the word of God. It comes from good church leaders like Paul. When he started this letter, when he addresses the people in the church, he addresses the saints, then he addresses the elders, he addresses the deacons. I need you guys here helping these people grow in this way. Discernment is a part of that knowledge, right? So it's about perception and understanding. 
We know the gospel message well enough to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong when it comes to the gospel. That's really important. And when we know what is right well enough, it should make us suspicious when we see things that look wrong or sound wrong. And then it should make us study more to gain more knowledge. But mostly, knowledge of his saving power is what we're talking about here, right? Jesus' work on the cross, the truth of the gospel, these things help us to grow in our agape love, our love for the Father. We grow in our love for him when we really grasp what he has done for us, right? And in spite of ourselves, he loved us. It's funny when people will say, Jesus loves you just the way you are. It's kind of a funny thing to say because it's not really true. And although we want people to understand that we don't think we're better than them because we're all sinful is, the more correct answer is Jesus loves us in spite of who we are because we are not holy. We are not sinless but he loves us in spite of who we are and then we strive for sinlessness um and this knowledge is part of our sanctification as we continue to get better and better and we grow in it and we learn to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless in the day of jesus christ so paul's prayer here includes believers being filled with fruit righteousness and comes through jesus christ fruit's a common theme right for believers, as we study the Bible, we learn that being filled with the Spirit produces good fruit, right? And we learn that we can discern who people are by the fruit that they produce. Because good trees produce good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. Jesus told us in John 15, 4 through 6, he said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So Paul is talking about this fruitfulness. We need to abide in him. So when we, we abide in him by knowledge and discernment. And so it's this reciprocal idea that the more we learn and the more we love and the more we act like Christians and the more we learn to discern the things that are right and wrong, we grow in knowledge, we grow in love, and we produce good fruit. So it's pretty clear, we'll wrap up here in just a second, but it's clear that we've read in the opening of Paul's letter to Philippi that it's driven by Paul's joy. The only question that remains to be answered is, are you driven by joy? So that would be the question to leave it today is, are you driven by joy? Last week, we defined joy from Strong's as the awareness of God's grace and favor. So are you driven by your awareness of what God has done in your life, the grace that he has afforded you and the favor that he gives you as a believer, as huyos, as a saint, as one of his own? And now put that in context of Paul's letter and examine your walk. I need to examine my walk. Do I thank God for the believers in my circle based on my joy, not on whether or not I like you as a person or not, but whether or not I love you as a fellow believer and want you to be saved. And it brings me joy that you are in Christ, in the Lord. Do you have confidence in your salvation? And this is a big one, and this is a tough one. Those days where things aren't perfectly going right, and you're like, Do, am I confident that I'm going to be saved based on my joy? Do you reach others for the gospel based on your joy? 
Do I tell people about Christ based on my knowledge and my understanding and my discernment? And because of my love for him, do I reach other people and share that gospel with them? Do you study the word of God and contemplate his truths based on your joy? So that knowledge and understanding should help us to want to dig into the word of God, which is living and breathing, sharp as a two-edged sword, and we dig in and we read it and it pours into us. And are you filled with the fruit of righteousness based on your joy? So as Paul told the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you and in me and in these kids will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that should be your joy. So personally for me, I'm thankful for you and you, and I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful for them, thankful for all of them. Um, I'm thankful for all of you that you would partner with me in Christ because it brings me joy. You are partakers with me in grace. That brings me joy. So pray with me. Father, thank you for who you are, and we thank you for this letter to the Philippians that we're able to dig into to help us gain knowledge of who you are, gain knowledge of what Christ would have for us in our walk. And we thank you for your grace that we surely did not deserve. We thank you for your sacrifice, which we surely did not deserve. We thank you for your apostles who taught and walked in your name, who penned these letters and these books by your favor that we're able to read them to gain knowledge about you, Lord. As we increase in knowledge and wisdom, we grow closer to you in love. As we become more discerning, we're able to reach people for the gospel. We're able to be better spouses, husbands to our wives, wives to our husbands, parents to our children. And we love you, Lord. We ask that you remind us and help keep us steadfast in our faith on those days when things don't necessarily feel like they're going our way. And mostly, Lord, we're just humbled and thankful for who you are, our righteous and precious Holy Savior, Jesus Christ.